Hello, you're listening to Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's very best radio station, beaming to you across the sky and through cables shivering in the earth and into your living rooms, bedrooms, offices or earphones. I'm James Butler and I'm joined this week by Paolo Gibaldo, director of the Centre for Digital Culture at KCL and author of the new book The Mask and the Flag, Populism, Citizenism and Global Protest. And we'll be discussing the book and the rise of populism throughout today's show. And if you head over to navaramedia.com, you can also watch a short video where I ask what populism is, as well as browse our latest articles and audio offerings, which include a podcast with the people behind the Take Back Control Tour, arguably the latest attempt to formulate a left populist project in the UK. Paolo, welcome. Hi, James. Populism is a strange beast and it's become something of a catch-all term for insurgent movements across the globe, linking together the Indignados, Occupy, Podemos... Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, along with Donald Trump, Marine Le Pen, nationalist movements in Poland and Hungary, and the strange political mess of Movimento Cinque Stelle in Italy. And that kind of list is the one that's usually used to begin discussions of populism, uh, as if there was some awareness of, of the terms strangeness and difficulty. It's also, uh, as Paolo, you discuss in the book, a term with a, a real history. Uh, and if it's used of so, so many seemingly quite different groups, groups. Uh, is it really a meaningful political term? I think populism is a term we find everywhere in contemporary political discussions, and it is mostly used in a pejorative term to describe what some people consider as pathologies or anomalies of politics. This is the reason why many people think that populism doesn't really have a real content. So we see populism used in reference to right-wing parties from uh, Farage, Farage's UKIP to Donald Trump to Le Pen, but also more generally used to uh, describe a kind of demagogic style of politics that you find across the board. Yeah? Uh, but actually, I think that the case is different. Populism has a real content to it. Populism is a real phenomenon, and it's a phenomenon that should be studied seriously because it deserves serious scrutiny and serious study. Um, Pretty much, very much because it is at the center of contemporary politics. It's not a pathology or an anomaly, as some people say, but it is actually, in a way, the dominant logic of contemporary politics. I mean, one of the things that that's, that struck me when I've been thinking about populism, and there's 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 good work on this. Um, I think from Marco Daramo uh, recently, when he's sort of been tracing the history of populism, is whether it functions you know, partly as a kind of catch-all term for the political centre to kind of talk about everything that's that's opposing it at, at the moment. Um, but but it's also, you know, that, you know, there was a conference, I think, 60 years ago with, you know, where Richard Hofstadter, you know, talks, says, you know, everyone is talking about populism, um, but no one can define it. Um, and, and the recent work on populism, you know, I think now of... Um, Jan van Muller's new book, you know, What is Populism? Very, very kind of strange, uh, strange book. Again, it starts with saying, oh, well, there's no, no one theory of populism. And then he argues that it, it's, it's defined by a kind of hostility to pluralism. And, and, but, then, but then can't quite make that definition fit either. So, so maybe we can begin with, you know, what you see, you know, the use of the term and, 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 and how, and, you know, the, whether, you know, whether there are characteristics shared across the board about all of these movements uh, and what the kind of specific uh, application of populism is to, to, to the left part of those groups. Yeah, I would say the populism can be described as a politics of popular sovereignty, the politics of the people and of people power, which obviously constitutes an element present in very different parties to different extents. And you can often recognize 
political logics when you realize who's, who their, their enemies are. And definitely populism is always in opposition to liberalism. That is why some liberal theories describe populism as illiberal, which it is. Because liberalism presupposes that our choices, our political choices, are made by free individuals, independently from their class or from their collective interests, while populism is all about the fact that there is a people will, that people decide, that the political community decides together. And that is why populism uh, likes so much moments of direct democracy, such as referenda or popular consultations, where the people's will is represented to the people and to the institutions. Uh, so populism is a logic that is opposed to institutions, is opposed to constitutionalism, is opposed to elites, and therefore uh, is, in a way, radical democracy, especially when it is manifested on the left, or it can take the form of uh, xenophobia and ethnopopulism as it is manifested on, on the right. What these two phenomena share, what these two political wings share, is this idea that there is such a thing as the people, with a capital P, and there is such a thing as the people's will. I mean, it's it's really interesting reading the work on this where, where I mean, and we can come on, I think, to talk about democracy and, and popular will, because those are two pretty interesting questions and they're, they're often pretty hard to pin down. Um, but, but, but just reading the, the, the kind of work and the panic about this stuff, right? Um, you know, the, the idea, you know, that, that, that actually all, all of this stuff is kind of hostile to democracy. You know, I was reading the, the Jan Werner Müller book last night and, uh, uh, you know, he says, oh, both left and right are hostile to democracy. And then, you know, a little bit later on, he's like, well, actually, you know, you probably can't call Bernie Sanders anti-democratic or you can't really call many of these movements the, the left part. So, so you know, the, there's some real difficulty with the term here. But it, it made me think, you know, you know, if we're seeking a kind of uh, etiology of the interest in populism, why is it that 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 all these scholars are particularly interested in populism now. And I was wondering, you know, whether this is motivated, I think, certainly in Europe, by a kind of, by the convulsions of the European Union, by the convulsions around, uh, you know, particularly the activity, the economic activity of the European Union, it's kind of uh, the, the activity of the, the European Central Bank. I mean, the kind of collision course that European centralizers uh, have put themselves on with, with national regimes. So the where the politics of European technocracy are really the only politics that, that, that are the game. It's the only game in town. It's the only serious thing. It's the only thing that real adults do. And that dynamic, I think, is really visible in a lot of the, the writing about these movements in particular, right, that, that these people don't really understand politics. And, you know, eventually they'll go away and let the grown-ups get on with things. Um, and, and, you know, alongside a fear that the spasms of populism threaten the very activity of politics itself. Um, so, so I wonder how much that, that kind of economic conflict, the kind of post-2008 conflict, is what, what, what is driving uh, populism, certainly in Europe, um, left populism, certainly in Europe, uh, and, and whether it goes deeper than this, whether it has deeper roots. Yeah, I think that the reasons for the current populist surge and for a current rise of interest in populism have definitely to do with uh, organic crises, uh, with this moment of both economic, political and social crises, which we have been witnessing since the 2008 financial crash. And we know from different Marxist theories, in particular Antonio Gramsci and Nikos Pulanzas, that indeed the politics of the people tends to manifest itself at such moment of organic crises, uh, which are moments where uh, the 
traditional structures of society, the structures that are used to represent different sections of society and sectional interests, for example, class interests, are somehow shaken and they are not able to represent anymore their social basis of reference. And I think that is a very uh, relevant picture to understand the current uh, situation. We're in a situation in which mechanisms of class representation, such as trade unions, are very weak. They're not able to channel popular demands, uh, popular dissent that is emerging from below, because many of the workers that are suffering now, they are not unionized, or there are people who are suffering because they are unemployed, and therefore they cannot be represented by, by unions in a traditional sense. And it, it has to do also with the crisis of representative democracy. I mean, when you're mentioning these people, these liberal theorists who are saying that populism is uh, the enemy of democracy, I mean, it tells us, I think, more about their vision of democracy than it tells us something about populism. And for them, democracy is basically a procedure mm -hmm. to elect elites that represent us. I mean, this is the definition that Schumpeter gave of democracy, right? Democracy is just a procedure to avoid civil war and to for people to choose some elites to govern over them, which is obviously very far from the radical vision of democracy, the vision of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and many other people that really believe that people uh, were entitled to self-government that, and that indeed you had to elect certain magistrates to facilitate government, but ultimately they were only the channel of people power. They were not the representatives in any sense. Yeah, I mean, the Schumpeterian vision of democracy is really, really quite a striking one in, in which he says, you know, I, I deal in votes like a, a businessman deals in oil or, you know, something like that. You think, wow, this is a really striking, you know, for, for a theorist of, of democracy to think about himself as, as in, the, in the role of a businessman. is it really, you know, <laughs> it's telling and, and perhaps it's really, it, it's really therefore unsurprising that model of democracy is, is, is kind of <laughs> coming up into, you know, com, com, confronting its crisis now. Um, but but I, I suppose it's striking in one sense that, um, you know, about the kind of intellectual resources that are being deployed by sort of anti-populist theorists. Are those of the Cold War? Are those of kind of Cold War liberalism that says, OK, well, there are there is this kind of vital centre and there are these kind of extremes that sort of band off into populism and that they're actually all the same and they always result in totalitarianism. I mean, is there, you know, is it, and I suppose, you know, that the, what I've been wondering about just, just looking at the kind of French elections, the forthcoming French elections, is is whether it's possible to deploy populism as a centrist. Because I, you know, you look at someone like Macron and you think, well, this guy is. I mean, he, is he trying a populism of the centre? That's a very strange thing. But I can't help think that he wouldn't exist were it not for these movements having having such a strong presence in Europe. I think there can be a populism of the center. I mean, it really depends on where is the area of society that is disorganized and unrepresented at any given point in time. Uh, so if it happens to be uh, social sections that are usually represented by, by the left and that are characterized by uh, poverty, low income, uh, those areas tend to be a perfect target for uh, both, in a way, left-wing and right-wing populist appeals uh, that are involved in uh, demands that have to do with redistribution of wealth or that have to do instead with a kind of scapegoating politics that uh, ultimately also appeals to people, on uh, to impoverished people, uh, at least in part 
part. If instead there is a situation in which the main class that is disorganized, kind of the middle class, or is an emerging social uh, fraction that doesn't feel represented, there, there you can have a kind of centrist uh, populist politics that responds to that, those ambitions. Uh, so in a way, that is also the sense in which partly one can say that some aspects of uh, Tony Blair's politics were populist in the sense that they were going against a certain corporate economic uh, system of representation that was not in the interest of certain sections of the British middle class at the moment in time, kind of middle Britannia, right? And so there can be a sort of, uh, uh, how you say, pro-establishment populism. In, I mean, Renzi in Italy. Yeah. is a perfect example of that. I mean, he appeals to, to the people, to popular sovereignty. Uh, he appeals to the people against trade unions, against the kind of organized working class. And he does so in a quite, uh, how do you say, uh, defensive sense, in a sense of saying, reassuring people and saying, all right, your savings are going to be defended. Uh, your present economic conditions are not going to decline. Is a, a conservative populism, ultimately, that promises to uh, maintain existing economic conditions for certain sectors of society. I think that is what Macron, in a way, is trying to do, is the Renzi white shirt uh, line of, of politics that many people have tried to, to apply. Many of them have failed. Miliband has failed. Renzi has failed. Uh, Pedro Sanchez failed in Spain. I think Macron is also in line to, to fail. Uh, and but definitely it is an interesting manifestation of how variable uh, and uh, multifaced uh, populism can be. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose the other thing that, that's in play here is that kind of period of, of 30 or 40 years of, of what Peter Mayer called, you know, you know in, in that book, Ruling the Void, where he describes this hollowing out of institutions and parties. But now we're seeing an institutional turn, aren't we, in populism? And that, 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 that I think, is one of the things that is most striking about your book is, is actually tracing, you know, or, or looking forward to the turn that's being taken from the kind of square-based movements, from the, the kind of agora, the, 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 the meeting place, uh, you know, the democratic meeting place in public, to start thinking in terms about institutions. And that, to me, is, is, is one of the things that really uh, is distinctive, I think, about this political uh, th this phase of political practice, but, but so your your book, which which you know we, we should say involve, has involved sort of four or five years of research, you know, and and travelling to the places and, and interviewing the people involved in these in these movements. So it's kind of very granular in that sense, right? Like it it it, it takes it tries to read a kind of emergent political practice rather than through the lens of say. Uh, 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 say a Marxist or an anarchist approach, which is, is some of the, the descriptions we've seen. So the title of the book it, it alludes to two features of the movements. You know, one, you know, a kind of horizontalist leveling instinct in kind of political practice and ethos, and another which is kind of maybe like a return to the concerns of the national, the bounded, uh, uh, the specific institutions of the nation state. How do those two fit together? Yeah, I'd say that the surprising thing of my book, the thing that in a way shocked me, and I think shocked many people in this generation, in the 2011 generation, what we could describe as the 2011 generation, was what in this book I describe as a populist turn. 
that that is for a long time since 1968 we have seen that the dominant uh, orientation in protest movements was anarchism uh, new anarchism in very different ways and we find it not just in uh, explicitly self-described anarchist movements but also for example in some strands of feminism in the squatters movement in the environmental movement they all share a certain anarchist imaginary that is against institutions against authority that is all about self-organization and what we see in those movements is instead something very strange. We see a mix of things. That is, there are still some very clear anarchist features, which are the ones that possibly are, that are more apparent at the start. And you particularly see in the Occupy movement that, uh, that many people took as being the entire 2011 movement. Now, there is also this kind of uh, distortion of uh, Eurocentrism and America-centrism. And there you saw some anarchist elements in the horizontalism, as you described, in the fact that the assemblies were managed according to consensus, in the fact that there was this rejection of leaders, this rejection of organizations, right? Yet at the same time, there was something also very different and very new. Uh, which was the fact that these movements were first and foremost real popular movements, mass movements that involved millions of people, four million in Spain, uh, millions of people in Turkey, in, in Egypt and other countries, and they didn't speak the usual activist talk. First and foremost, people didn't describe themselves as activists or rebels. They didn't want to be seen as militants or uh, antagonistic. They wanted to be seen as kind of commonsensical people taking a stand against the system uh, that they uh, denounced and for very material and objective reasons, not for voluntarist reasons. Not, uh, there is a very good phrase in Spain, we're not against the system, we're not anti-system, it's the system that is against us. Right? That is, our uh, fight is not grounded in a kind of subjective uh, uh, despise of authority or in a subjective despise of capitalism. We don't care about capitalism, we care about the rich and the financier, right? And I think that that is very interesting. And there you find, though, uh, as it often happens actually in moments of transition, that there, are, uh, there is a mix of the old and the new. There, are these, there is this emergent element, this populist element, which is the we are the 99% famous slogan, that we are more than them and we will win slogan used in Spain. This sense, this majoritarian ambition, this hopeful, enthusiastic sense of we are going to win because we are more than them. And on the other ha hand, this uh, more uh, kind of individualist, neo-anarchist culture that doesn't believe in institutions, right? I mean, ultimately what I argue is that is the populist tendency that prevails. So it's a movement that it is anarchist in form, yet populist in content. And it's populist in content in the very declarations of the assemblies of these movements, when they say, we the people, when they reclaim the US constitution, uh, when they say, uh, we want uh, power, we want people power, we want to take away power from our representatives, but we want to use uh, power against uh, capitalism. Yeah? So that is the kind of strange thing that then leads to many problems of these movements, and ultimately I also argue to, to their failure, right? It's in a way, these two tendencies ultimately are irreconcilable, right? You cannot have a mass movement that operates by consensus. You cannot have a movement of millions of people where one person can veto collective decisions. Yeah? That is, I think, the, the, the moment where these movements ultimately collapse because of this ultimate uh, contradiction they have. So if these movements, you know, have collapsed in that sense or have sort of encountered this, this limit point, um, you, know, you know, what kind of, well, I mean, what kind of uh, 
measures being taken, I can think here, you know, obviously in Spain you have a kind of institutionalization. Um, perhaps in the UK, some of the stuff that's happened with Jeremy Corbyn and, and his campaign in the Labour Party is, is really indicative of, of that kind of movement, searching for a kind of institutional host. Um, and of course, in in the UK, in the UK, there's only one possible institutional host, right? Because that's that's the way that the, the politics is set up. But 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 is is something lost here? Is is there something that that because because there are, and I think now particularly in in Spain, um, you know, there are critiques from the kind of grassroots uh, of the of the kind of direction that Podemos has taken uh, over the course of the past few years, it's increasing centralization and the kind of calculations it makes about how to be electable. Isn't that just a pretty conventional transition into into kind of institutional politics? I mean, at first, uh, on the first count, we need to say it, it was a failure, but in a way, a creative failure. As it happens with many contemporary movements, they are not directly addressing the power structure. They are, in a way, creating the conditions to fight against the power structure. They are creating a kind of psychological condition. They're giving people the sense of purpose. They're giving people the sense that they can work together. They're educating people. They are sort of incubators where new political leaders, new networks, new organizations arise. Yeah? And you couldn't think of Podemos without the Indignados. You couldn't imagine Bernie Sanders without Occupy Wall Street. You couldn't think of Corbyn as Labour leader without Occupy in the UK. I mean, that is a fact. And that really tells you how those movements were a conditions of possibility, a condition of possibility for uh, the political ramifications that came after them. Yeah? Then, though, there is a, obviously a contradiction between uh, the radical democratic spirit of these movements and these as you say, rather uh, conventionally organized uh, formations. Uh, where you see uh, my girlfriend is Spanish, so I, 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 and she's very passionate about politics and Podemos, so I get a lot of uh, information from her. Uh, and she is a typical first uh, our indignados and first our Podemista. But she's getting uh, increasingly uh, disappointed about Podemos and how things are going, because indeed she sees that there is this kind of elitism inside the populist movement, right? Mm -hmm. That you are then sort of coming back to the iron law of oligarchy, ultimately, yeah. right? Yeah. That in a way, populism is precisely fighting against. Mm -hmm. But once you create organizations, you are bound once again, to a certain extent, to reproduce that logic. Especially at moments when uh, the high of mobilizations is ensued by a low of mobilization. Uh, and what happens there is that many people who were enthusiastic about the, the party that brought all the energy of the movement inside the party and now ultimately propelled it to where it now stands are retreating because they're saying, we, I don't recognize myself anymore in this. But then you also see that the people is an autonomous force because obviously uh, these parties and these candidates can cannot ignore the fact that they are losing popular backing, that they are losing the enthusiasm that, that has pushed them there. Yeah, And then obviously uh, movements need always to be mobilized and active. I think that another protest wave is due mm -hmm. uh, after Trump's election, after uh, Brexit and all, and all this kind of right wing uh, phenomena. Uh, we are now six years away from 2011, and that was something that was unfinished. There's, there is unfinished business there. There is a, a cultural and social revolution uh, in society that is that is required, and without which we cannot move forward on the political level. So, I mean, one of the things that that I think is really uh, striking about the the book is is how clearly you delineate the difference of, of that last protest wave from the kind of anti-globalization movement that preceded them, and and you know it. You know, it struck me the other day that there's you. 
you know that that this is visible on you know even on a theoretical level and you know some, one of the people who really uh does can rather change with the wind on this stuff is someone like Tony Negri who in the you know in, in the early 2000s could endorse the european constitutional process as a sort of bulwark against american imperialism and but but by you know a couple of years ago saying well you know the the european central bank is is the incarnation of the winter palace today so so that you know those changes are even visible in the kind of way that theorists are, are reflecting on the movement one of the things that struck me and thinking about Europe again as a, as, as a whole, and and I, I and again, I, you know, one of the things to, to underline is that it's not just a European phenomenon, but Europe has a very specific uh, uh, thing about it, and it's it, it's it's a testing ground for a lot of this stuff. And I was reminded of an objection made by, uh, which stri- struck me as a kind of proto-populist objection in in a completely bizarre place, is uh, the objection uh, voiced by the Belgian Enterprise Minister Paul Magnette in uh, 2010. Uh, sorry, no, 2012, I think. Uh, and, and he's complaining about uh, the, the Commissioner for Monetary Affairs and the Euro, Olli Rehn, who uh, was sort of put into place by Schäuble. Rehn is a, was a Finnish Thatcherite who is now sort of uh, a European functionary. And he complains, you know, and so he, 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 has demand, he demands that the Belgian government remove 1.3 billion from its, gov- from its budget. And, and he stands up, this is the enterprise minister, stands up in parliament and says, who knows Olli Rehn? Who has ever seen Olli Rehn's face? Who knows where he comes from and what he has done? Nobody. Yet he tells us how we should conduct economic policy. Europe has no democratic legitimacy to do this. And that question of democratic legitimacy to me is, is, the, is the really, really central part of this, this kind of populist trend. Um, and you also use the word sovereignty. And sovereignty is an unfamiliar term for the left and one that's kind of a bit uncomfortable. Certainly the left that's inherited the last kind of few decades of, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, hesitancy about about sovereignty anyway. So ha- ha- how much is sovereignty part of these movements? Uh, and, and what does that mean in a left sense? I, mean, I think sovereignty is in a way the master signifier of the current era, of this post-neoliberal era, what we might then later call a populist era, in that you see that both the new left, the post-crash left and the post-crash right uh, are at each other loggerheads yet they share something in common. And with this something in common is the common kind of discursive battlefield. And at the center of this battlefield, there is this, uh, this word, sovereignty. Yeah? And you see sovereignty invoked by Marine Le Pen, who is making that a kind of flagship concept in her campaign. Sovereignty obviously was at the center of the Brexit campaign. Uh, sovereignty was used by Trump against China, 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 and uh, against Mexicans. Yet you also see that used by their opponents, uh, by Bernie Sanders saying that he wants to defend U.S. sovereignty against global trade deals, uh, used by Pablo Iglesias, whose very last speech on the European Union was all about sovereignty. And then what you realize there, is, indeed, is somehow puzzling uh, because we are not used anymore to hear the word sovereignty on the left. Yet, if you go back to the dawn of the left, and that is the French Revolution and the period before the French Revolution, you see that the idea of sovereignty in its specific manifestation as popular sovereignty, as power, territorial power in the hands of the people, was the foundational concept of the left. That is, you wouldn't have Marx without popular sovereignty, you wouldn't have anarchism without popular sovereignty, you wouldn't have anything that came after without this foundational concept of popular sovereignty. Popular sovereignty is obviously uh, the idea of proposed by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 
Rousseau that then goes on to inspire the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and therefore it's a fundamentally leftist idea. What is that idea about? That the people in any given area, at city level, as Geneva at the times of Rousseau, at national level, regional level, you name it, wherever a people can be constituted, that is a community that identifies itself as a community, as a fundamental natural right to govern itself, mm -hmm. right? The European Union has been built in a way against this spirit, against this fundamental idea. It has been built after the blueprint of Friedrich von Hayek, the big neoliberal theorist, who theorized already in the 30s that you needed a federation uh, basically to stop popular sovereignty that is so as dangerous, because he thought that popular sovereignty would uh, inevitably lead to totalitarianism, right? Uh, because for him, left politics, social democracy, everything was ultimately just, uh, uh, I would say, an early stage of Nazism. Yeah, I mean, politics a tool for Hayek, really. Like anything that isn't sort of the the, the catalaxy, the free flow of uh, the market exchange. I mean, the, the 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 thing that's that's I suppose really striking about sovereignty, and and again, when thinking about the these kind of uh, uh, these these uh, anti anti populist theorists, these liberal theorists, is the the claim that um, oh well populists uh, don't really speak in the name of the ninety nine percent. They claim to speak in the name of the hundred percent. They are they are the only legitimate people. And you think well, you know, the constitutional moment in democracy is when people say we the people. Um, so and <laughs> as if that doesn't have its exclusions, as if that hadn't had its exclusions as well. Um, so 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 there's that you know it, it seems to me that 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 this is a you know a nonsense objection. But where I where I think there is is something that maybe the history of political theory can 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 give us something to think about or, or give us something to 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 take to our political practice here is that. And I, I've been thinking about this because in Britain at the moment, when people talk about the people's will, they mean, you know, uh, you know, let's be as racist as possible. Let's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that question, and, you know, I think it, it was really striking, you know, in, in, in the Occupy camps, which I, you know, visited and found, you know, it, both inspiring and, and frustrating in a lot of ways, right? Be partly because I brought a lot of kind of preconceptions about how political activity was supposed to take place. Uh, right, which say, why are you here rather than in your workplace? Uh, you know that that kind of thing. But but also, you know, the, this continual sense that you know you're going to come together and all agree on this one will, this kind of volonté that's going to appear, and we're all going to, to that. That's not possible. So, what kind of will are we talking about? What kind of popular will are we talking about in populism? I mean, I, I think that. In a way, in social movements, you see a sort of, uh, how you say, uh, a turning upside down of the world in which you live often, right? There is this reversal of the world in which you live. So this assertion about popular sovereignty, it may sound a bit uh, ludicrous uh, to more kind of experienced activists, a bit naive, a bit ingenuous, a bit innocent, say. Uh, but that is against the background of a world in which popular sovereignty is hollowed out and which people don't have any sense of kind of collective solidarity. Uh, no sense of class solidarity, no sense of kind of local solidarity. And therefore, those movements were about, in a way, reinfusing a sense of that, right? They were about uh, saying, hey, I mean, we know how bad the situation is. We, need to, uh, we, we know we need to do something about it. So let's try to come together emotionally and... You need that always, always to create a new political wave, and, and let's create something. So there was this element of of, uh, of naivety 
that though is, I think, a very positive element of those movements too, right? Uh, in, in Spain, uh, they, they refer to that as ingenuidad, ingenuity, which actually means uh, I'm an Italian, I'm Italian, and in Italian, ingenuity is a very bad term because we Italians have a culture that is very, in a way, cynical towards politics. Yeah, so something yeah. that is... With in, reason. I mean, 20th century in Italy is... Yeah, of poisoning and intrigues <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Borgia and, and all of that. Yet, that was the amazing thing, the miraculous thing about those movements. It is the fact that people said, people forgot, people bracketed all the defeats of the left, you know, all these things that we in our generation have been hearing on and on and on. Yes, you know, the working class defeat, the miners' strike, the Soviet Union collapsing, neoliberalism and Thatcher and Reagan. They said, all right, wait a minute. I don't give a damn about it. I don't care about it. Let's start from scratch, which obviously is quite a naive position to take politically, yet in a way is also the kind of mindset you need at a given moment in time to create something new. Otherwise, you are always bound to these politics of resignation. And I see that, again, in Italy very strongly. I mean, Italy has such a, uh, such a terrible sense of resignation now because of the 70s still, the 70s are still lingering over because of 2001, of Genoa. This sense, you know, that ultimately you can never do it. Ultimately, there is always something bigger than you that comes and disrupts your uh, your effort, that ultimately the state is a leviathan you can do nothing against, right? And that is why I, I think that these moments, these politics of hope, these politics of enthusiasm is ultimately so important because it is instrumental. It leads to results in the long term. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's really striking, actually. And the, you know, this, the, you know, when thinking about sovereignty and in, in, uh, in these movements and thinking about that sense of a lack, it's also visible in the demand for real democracy, right? Like that sense that actually there is a lack, there is something hollowed out, and there's something that needs refilling. Um, in, in, in that sense. I, I mean, one of the things in terms of, because when I think of the movements that I participated in and the, when they've been, you know, at their peak, there, was a, there is a sense of possibility. There is a sense of confidence. And, and that, that it, it, you know, they run on that stuff. They run on that stuff. Um, so that, just, just moving from that sense of lack, that sense, you know, that, that these movements are driven by the, the sense that individuals' lives are, are hollowed out, that there is no control uh, over uh, economic policy, that there is no real control over the priorities of government, that there is no sense of uh, fede publica, kind of, you know, uh, civic trust. Uh, and so the, the desire to refill these things, you know, starting from that kind of emblematic moment of the square, but, but moving on to say, is this what you mean by citizenism? Yeah, I think this is a kind of a term I use in the book. It's not a term I invented. It's a term that was used in France, citoyenism, a term that was used a lot in Spain, ciudadanismo. In a way, it was used as a synonym of populism because also in those countries, the populism is a, is a kind of bad press. <laughs> so it was used as a more kind of a soft, as a softer term to say, hey, you know, this is a politics of ordinary people, a politics of citizens. Uh, but I think it's also interesting because it points to the specificity of the populism we see there in the squares. And the populism we see there is quite different from kind of traditional populism. Uh, first and foremost, it doesn't have a charismatic leader in the squares. In a way, it's the squares themselves that provide the kind of uh, uh, center of the identification instead of a personified leader. Right? People uh, rally around a physical point in space. Right. And secondly, because there is not this sense of, uh, you know, there is people that is already given, right? 
but rather the sense that the people is something that has to be constructed, that needs to be constructed uh, in a bottom-up direction, starting from ordinary people, their stories, their conversations, uh, their individual experience. And, and then this is why in the squares, the most moving moment is this moment of uh, collective confession, confession, where people are coming there and and narrating their stories of uh, their history of failure, basically, in a neoliberal framework. Uh, I was an entrepreneur. Now I am on the breadline. I don't know what to do. I was, uh, uh, I'm a graduate student. I cannot find any job. I'm a single mother with children. I don't know where to sleep with, their children, with my children because I cannot afford the rent. And it is really an amazing moment because you see that there is the moment where all these individual stories of misery, disgrace, actually turn into collective empowerment. Because people realize in that moment that they are citizens. As Daniel Blake, actually, uh, the... Uh, the last movie, uh, the, the, the last Ken Loach, uh, Ken Loach's movie, he, he, there is this moment where he says, I, I don't remember the exact uh, words, but basically he says, uh, I'm not somebody who is looking for, for charity. I'm not a beggar. I am a citizen, right? which is quite an interesting assertion as a radical assertion, because it means that citizenship is something that we kind of took for granted until some time ago, and we uh, basically identify with having a passport or having a sort of uh, uh, a national insurance number, uh, something very boring and something very uh, trivial in a way, it becomes in a way a source of dignity. It becomes basically the assertion of saying, hey, hey I am an individual with rights. Mm -hmm. I am an individual uh, with dignity. I am an individual who should be respected. And 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 that sense of, of, of self of, of self-respect, the sense of dignity becomes the source then for uh, the construction of the popular will. Let me ask a question about the construction of the people and the, the political practice of Podemos. Or, or, it, so it's an anxiety for me. I, and it's one of the, the, the things I have difficulty thinking about and I, I sort of revisit a lot. And I don't, I don't think there's an easy answer to it. And it's, it's, it's about that kind of the, the political practice that is sort of associated with Laclau and Podemos and, and you know, that kind of theoretical uh, block. And it kind of sets the pattern for some of the ground assumptions of, of some populist practice. And it's the idea that this, this, this current period historically is distinguished from the previous one, not, not by on, only the, the relatively low level of kind of classic class or industrial struggle, um, but the limited pertinence of, of classic formulations of economic class to contemporary society. And so taking that as axiomatic, then the reanimation of kind of broadly left political formulations or, or action is reformulated in one of two ways. One is like either making the use of sort of new cleavages around social identity to push forward a classic class struggle just under, you know, new names uh, in new clothing, uh, or to take those new cleavages as constituting a sort of entirely new politics uh, oriented towards radical democracy. This is sort of later Leclerc. Uh, and making, therefore, a truce with, you know, if not a total peace, certainly a truce with capitalism as it, as it, as it exists, as it stands. And my sense of the, the way the broader left thinks about populism and thinks about that political practice, it, it tends to slip between those two things quite a lot. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that confusion itself leads to a, a bit of a strategic difficulty. And I wonder here, I wonder about the, the one, the power that this can place in the hands of kind of a small cast of intellectuals, right, who, who, who figure out the cleavages and then sort of put them into political practice. Um, but it also preserves, I think, an emphasis on politics 
um, where previous movements have, have tried to expand the sphere of politics or, or have tried to locate it in relation to the economic in a much more kind of emphatic way. So is this something I should be worried about? I mean, I think that you're right in saying that there is a kind of complex uh, connection, relationship between populism and class. I think that populism, left-wing populism, is in a way a solution to the current uh, uh, failure of class politics and class identity. So I think we can all agree that we live in a moment where class politics should be there, but it is not there. I mean, you look everywhere in my workplace, and I'm sure in many people's workplaces, that there are some issues that are very objective. They're about material interests, yet people, for whatever reason, uh, they don't manage to identify the fact that they have collective interest in fighting on those issues. It may have to do with many things, with neoliberalism, with individualism, with the extreme fragmentation uh, of uh, the economic system in our society, with the politics of envy, where when every every time somebody is fighting for some rights, uh, the kind of the immediate reaction of people in a nearby sector is not saying, hey, I'm in solidarity with them, but what are those people? Why, are, why, are, why do they want higher wages? I am entitled to higher wages, not them, you see? So in a way, populism is, is an attempt to construct collective solidarity at a higher level than class solidarity, precisely because class solidarity is not there. Um, and is not there because of the post-industrial transformation of the system, because of a situation of crisis in which, as we know in history, there is a tendency in which uh, ultimately the capitalist class becomes stronger in moments of crisis because workers have no work, they have no lever to put pressure on, on, on capitalists. Then, indeed, I think there is a risk that then you uh, tend basically towards a politics of, uh, how you say, of quietism, where you say basically, so we are don't want to fight against capitalism, only against its ugliest manifestations. Uh, but I don't think, I mean, in a way, you may say that in a way that the, the ultimate kind of policy platform of left-wing populism is rather moderate, yet in present uh, uh, social conditions, it is very radical. Because say, for example, the things that Sanders wanted to implement, they ultimately are social democratic demands, mm -hmm. right? But would uh, <laughs> we know that the capitalist class wasn't at all happy about it yeah. and liberals were not at all happy about it yet you know that those things were very radical because ultimately you could implement them and, you and, and, he got so close to winning the primaries he probably close to winning the elections if he had won the primaries and imagine how different the world would be <laughs> ultimately i think only if you i believe in a way in a certain political gradualism uh, you need to win the simple fights to win more uh, harder fights yeah, yeah. i mean one of the things that's so striking about uh the the kind of liberal uh, journalism or, or liberal scholarship on populism at the moment is that it is the way in which you know relatively mild social democrats you know in, in historical terms are bracketed with like out and out fascists in Eastern Europe as being somehow part of the same thing it's really really striking um so yeah I mean I, I agree and one of the things that 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 is interesting to me you know in, in the way that these things have manifested is you know looking at the the demands that came from something like the economics working group at the occupy sort of encampment and you think oh, this, this is kind of grab bag of all these ideas and you think you know how is this going to how is this going to work in practice i mean it, you know and one of the things that holds things together that holds demands together are kind of big picture visions of the world um and you know we know that the old left had you know, big picture visions of the world, you know, so, so doctrinaire <laughs> visions of the world that, that, you know, you could make reality fit to it for as long as possible. But, you know, I, I, 
I wonder if there's a danger these days of these movements swinging in another way, which is a kind of unstable eclecticism, um, which sort of, uh, you know, particularly when trying to unite that sort of digital uh, levelling impulse with the kind of realities of, you know, the nation state remaining as the basic unit of political thought and political administration. How would you say, I think that these movements have on, uh, I mean, there is a risk that some people see these as a sort of going back in history to the nation state that was very good, but it was never so good when you actually were there, right? Uh, I think that, that that shouldn't be the case. Obviously, I mean, it is for some people, and some people take that uh, left-wing populism to be that, right? A sort of new... Uh, socialism in one country kind of vision that obviously is parochial and problematic and that doesn't deal with the complexity of the world. There is also a kind of streak of anti-modernism in some uh, of the currents of left-wing populism that in a way clashes, uh, for example, with a more uh, positive view of technology and technological emancipation and uh, that I think is, is in a way more promising. Um, I think in a way now we are at sort of uh, year zero in, in many respects, you know, where new ideas are being tested, where new visions are, are being tested. We still lack indeed a big picture vision. So there are people who are trying to formulate uh, big ideas. And you see, and that is why we see many isms popping up at the moment, precisely because once again, people are concerned with isms. They are concerned with ideology. They are concerned with uh, worldviews and which means that they are concerned with projects mm. because they don't believe anymore that there is no alternative. They think, hey, you know, wait, wait a sec. These, there is no alternative world is actually collapsing, which means that actually there is an alternative. So what is this alternative concretely? I mean, we are still in a way far from, from knowing exactly what, what that is. I think that kind of left-wing populism provides some indications of where we might be heading. And these indications have to do with the fact that, you know, we, you need to deal with the state you cannot just refuse, you can refuse that the state exists or you can ignore the state, but the state will never ignore you. So it's your decision. <laughs> if you want power to be exercised over you without you having any impact on that, 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 that is your decision, but we know that the decision doesn't take you very, very far. Yeah? Uh, then I think in a way we, uh, we will probably see in future years some of these visions coalescing into something more concrete, also because we have different sorts of left-wing populism. We have the municipalism of uh, uh, Ada Colau and Manuela Carmen in Spain, the uh, mayors of Barcelona and Madrid, respectively, which is very weird. Left-wing populism is basically La Clau uh, and Bookchin, <laughs> the famous uh, uh, social ecology uh, anarchist theorist, uh, merged together, mm -hmm. uh, you then have a more kind of national popular communism of Pablo Iglesias, you have a sort of neo-peronism of Inigo Rejon, you have a sort of techno-populism, if you want to call it like that, uh, that you see, for example, in the Five Star Movement, mm -hmm. right? You have different strands there. You see that in a way it's a kind of family of parties and ideologies that, that, that in the future may actually take quite different directions. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing that struck me this morning, I was reading a story on um, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, the <laughs> five-star movement saying, oh, well, we can govern with the Northern League, actually, that would be fine. Um, and so, but, you know, and one of the big arguments, I think, around the five-star movement for the Italian left has been about, about kind of migrants. It's been about, you know, the status of migrants. And I guess it's, you know, one of the things for me 
when thinking about populism, and this is my major reservation, I think, is exactly how we deal with the, the relationship to the nation state. Um, and, you know, I, I, I wonder if there are grounds for a new internationalism um, along these lines or, or, and, and, and where that emerges from. Um, because I mean, just to say, if you're listeners who don't know that the, the Five Star Movement it has made a lot of hay, and again, the Five Star Movement is a really weird uh, movement in Italy. It's a very strange, heterogeneous kind of. It, it's made up of a very, very strange composite of people. But a lot of them have have taken to saying, you know, we don't dislike migrants. It's just you know, Italy is very poor. It can't handle. It. You know, so you know, with with great regret, we just have to let them die or something. So so. But, and this is something that in the United Kingdom uh, happens in a different way, but is is the same sentiment that's kind of charged for for Brexit. So I suppose my question is that you know at, at the beginning of this wave, we had a lot of optimism about kind of the technological, communicative, democratic potentials around social media and around the internet to bring these things together. And, you know, in, in the course of the past couple of years, uh, we, we've, you know, <laughs> we felt perhaps a little less like these things work as, as, as intrinsically towards a, a progressive future as, as we think they will do. So, you know, I, I might have thought, you know, a few, a few years ago that the internet offers us a potential for reinvigorating a kind of international solidarity. Is that still the case? I, mean, I think, as you were saying, I mean, the Five Star Movement is a very interesting case study in that it is a very weird party. I mean, it incorporates kind of radical left-wing demands and radical right-wing demands. So basic income uh, and on the one hand and anti-migrant spirit on the other hand, uh, with a very strong anti-migrant rhetoric, especially from Grillo, right? And there you see indeed a problem and risk that, that basically uh, left-wing populism becomes a sort of nationalism with uh, and uh, IT migrants, anti-migrants politics that incorporates that from the right as um, for matters of kind of political opportunism uh, to say, hey, that is the only way we can win uh, the people's consensus. I think that on that matter, uh, there is a very long cultural battle and needs to be fought on migration. We know that anti-migrant spirit is at its highest uh, in recent history. And obviously, uh, we need to uh, modify, I think, we need to rethink the discourse of migration, how we talk about migration. Uh, that is, we often talk about migration in a very kind of neoliberal, neoliberal imaginary, all being about individual freedom and not being about collective solidarity. And obviously, we need to uh, uh, stop entrepreneurs and a capitalist class exploiting uh, migrant labor as a way to divide labor, right? That is the problem, right? Uh, and, and, and that is the matter that we find that a lot of the discontent about from, say, the, the so-called white working classes, as it has been defined, against migration has to do with the fact that they perceive it as a kind of economic threat, right? It is often kind of economic xenophobia rather than kind of cultural xenophobia, right? And, and obviously, you need to find ways and policies to, to uh, address that kind of preoccupation, right? Which doesn't mean closing borders and throwing migrants to the sea, but, for example, uh, stopping entrepreneurs from exploiting migrant labor to uh, pressure to press down wages, right? Uh, and, and we know that the European Union has been has been uh, very much created for that purpose. Yeah. In 2004, when uh, the, it has been opened to Poland and other many other Eastern European countries, it was meant as a capitalist strategy to uh, lower labor standards and, and lower salaries, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the thing to say here is actually the migration, you know, certainly in the UK has a relatively marginal effect on wages. It's there, but it's, it's pretty small. Um, but the thing is, is that, that even when you explain that, 
You know, it, it's not a, you know, facts don't matter here. They, then it's not a debate that can be conducted by fact. Um, I wonder here if, if maybe the thing that we should be thinking about is security. You know, and, and the thing that drives a lot of this is a sense of insecurity. It's a sense of, you know, lacking, uh, you know, any kind of stable, secure basis on, on which to, to feel that your future is, is taken seriously, that is, is, is even on in the vision of government at all. And so I wonder, I wonder if there are, you know, because security is also one of those terms that is usually associated with, you know, shooting people and things. So, so I, wonder if, I wonder if it's possible for that. And it's, this is, I suppose, one of the questions that confronts left populist movements in the UK. Uh, I've, I've just been speaking to uh, the people who are organising Take Back Control tour uh, in, in, in the UK, um, who are, you know, trying to sort of jam these right-wing narratives. Um, it, it, is that possible? Uh, yes. I mean, first and foremost, we need to jam the right-wing narrative. I think that, that is already a statement, right, in a sense that we need to win the battle for hegemony uh, and for common sense. Because if we don't win it, the other guys win, and the policies they're going to push are going to be horrible policies, right, starting from migration. Uh, secondly, uh, I think indeed, I mean, when this anti-migrant sentiment, we need to study and understand it, right? Uh, it's not something that many uh, of us in the kind of, who live in London, who uh, are kind of middle-class people can understand, but we need to make an effort to understand what the roots are so that we can fight against it in a more effective manner. Uh, you know, it has a lot to do with the fact that nowadays kind of race and class, ethnicity and class, uh, crisscross with one another. So, for example, when I'm talking with people, uh, comrades of mine, for example, who, who live or work in very uh, peripheral areas of Milan, and they are seeing how uh, in these areas uh, two things combine. On the one hand, this sense of decline, this retreat of the state, and this influx of migration. So, in a way, migration becomes a symptom, a wrong symptom of a broader phenomenon, this sense of insecurity that doesn't have to do with migration as such, has to do with neoliberalism, has to do with cutbacks on public spending, has to do with the fact that police forces are not around because they have cut on public spending, they made cuts on public spending, and therefore uh, people take it out on migrants. And it's very easy uh, to scapegoat migrants because migrants are out there, they can be seen, they can be identified, and that is in a way a very, um, strategic, very problematic strategic element for, for left-wing populism. In, in that uh, our enemies, the enemies of left-wing populists, are more abstract, are more distant than the enemies of right-wing populism. That is, we fight against people on yachts and in Wall Street and in skyscrapers and uh, enjoying the high life and jetting around the world. They are fighting against people you can see in the supermarket or in the street, right? So there is a real problem of how you mobilize uh, emotionally hate against the enemy. Yes, yeah. Yeah, give it a face and a name. Uh, we have three minutes left. Uh, my last question to you, and because the book is shot through with an optimism, it's an optimism that's rare, I think, on the left, and it's, it makes it a good read. Um, what are the sources for optimism today? Where should we be looking and drawing inspiration from? Because things can look pretty dark at the moment. Uh, yes, indeed, things can look very dark. And I think there's been a lot of talking about mourning and melancholia on the left. I mean, if we abandon ourselves to that, we abandon ourselves to uh, a politics of depression that is not going to take us anywhere. This is what Bernie Sanders says all the time, every day. We cannot allow ourselves to uh, to uh, uh, to weep on, on, on this defeat. We need to fight forward. We got very close in the US, for example, to winning, uh, uh, to 
having one of ours as president of the US, which is no small feat, right? And, and that should encourage us and motivate us uh, Mm, to say, hey, uh, we need to, we we have an opportunity to we need first to to uh, fight against uh, the baddies, against Trump, against Le Pen and the others. Then we need to conclude the fight against neoliberals, and then we need to take power. Uh, because I mean, we see that Trump's uh, tenure in the White House is not really going uh, too well. Uh, so is not, and, and the same will happen, I think, with many other right wing populists. Uh, so this is not at all the time for sorrow. This is not an all, all the time for mourning and for melancholia. This is the time to fight and organize, remembering the good things we did back in 2011, remembering the failures of 2011, learning from that, learning from the victories and from the defeats of 2011. There's a lot that we can find there that can serve uh, both as a kind of cautionary tale and, and as an inspiration for our politics going forward. No useless despair, I think, and I think it's really... You know, you look back at people like Rosa Luxemburg and you think, well, you know, Rosa in prison could, you know, look at the sky and try and find you know, something's gone with it. So I, I think I perhaps don't have that constitution. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, allowing these things to, 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 to live in our memory and, and, and move them forward, I think is hugely important. Uh, Paolo Gibardo, thank you for joining us. This Thanks has been uh, Navara FM. Your book, The Mask and the Flag, is out now uh, from Hearst Publishers. I recommend it. Immensely. Uh, if you want to hear more about populism, there's plenty on the Navarra Media website. Go and find that. We'll be back same time, same place next week. And I hope, Paolo, you'll join us again sometime uh, to take this discussion further. Goodbye. This show is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navarramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarro Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarro Media. Media for a different politics.